You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Before I get started on today's episode, I want to just say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening and telling their friends about the show. With season three, ArtSmart has shot up to the top of the visual arts charts here in the U.S., and it feels really good to know that so many people like what I've been doing. If you want to give me feedback to help me keep growing and improving, please take the network survey linked in the show notes or by going to www.surveymonkey.com r airwave. If you fill out the survey, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card as our way of saying thank you. And just to give you one more reason to check the links in the show notes, I'm going to start adding some links to some of my favorite video lesson plans related to each episode for those who feel inspired to create. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at paint. Painting is one of the oldest art forms known to man, and evidence of the creative expression can be found on the rock walls of caves all around the world. On September 12, 1940, a dog fell down a foxhole and four boys went in after it. They descended into a cavern with a makeshift lamp and hopes of finding their dog but they found way more creatures than they were expecting. The next day, they returned better prepared and with better lighting. They continued to explore in awe of the paintings that surrounded them. They told their teacher about their discovery, and shortly after, the professional excavation of the caves of Lascaux began. The Lascaux cave is pretty deep, and the natural question, of course, is... How could artists see their work in a deep, dark cave? If there's one thing we know about prehistoric civilization, it's that records from that time are spotty at best, but we can take some educated guesses based on artifacts that we encounter. Archaeologists have found evidence of sandstone lamps that burned animal fat as fuel. They also had some fireplaces in the caves it's safe to assume that the conditions were rather smoky deep inside the caves, leading to a bit of speculation about these works. One theory is that the reduced oxygen in that environment would lead to altered states of mind for the inhabitants. Some believe the paintings on the walls could have served some ritualistic purpose, drawn to create some sort of hunting magic. Or it could have just as easily been a prehistoric version of the WPA giving some work to cave dwellers who weren't great at the hunting and the gathering. Imagine like 15,000 BCE, people were sitting around saying, Ugg's kind of clumsy, just gets in the way of the hunt, but he's such a nice guy. Maybe we could just let him color some pictures, you know, humor him, make him feel like he's helping. 
But in all seriousness, these paintings are pretty amazing feats. Getting back to the detail of the lighting I mentioned earlier. Today, some archaeologists suggest that the dim, flickering light of the old lamps was actually crucial to appreciating the artwork. Today, when people look at the art from the Lascaux Caves, or rather they look at reproductions of the work, either in photographs or a replica constructed when access to the actual cave site was closed off for preservation purposes in 1963, people are often awestruck by the mass of images they see depicted. Illuminated by bright modern lights, we see hundreds of animals. But tens of thousands of years ago, prehistoric artists and audiences would have seen just a small portion at a time under the flickering firelight. The theory is that these images would have been lit up in sequence to create a sort of prehistoric animation effect as light and shadows moved, showing just small portions of a few animals at a time. This would make for quite a dramatic storytelling and impactful ritual for an audience descending into the cave to prepare themselves for a hunt or perhaps returning to share a dramatic tale of their survival and good fortune. While we're unsure of the exact intentions of the artists and audience, we do know that these works were created intentionally and with great care. Evidence of that can be found not only in the number of animals shown, there are around 600 paintings and 1,500 engravings in the Lascaux Caves. But additionally, some of the pigments, the colored stuff used to make these paintings, were things like manganese oxide, which would have been rather difficult for prehistoric artists to acquire. There are no known manganese oxide sources in the immediate area. The closest known source would have been about a hundred miles away. It was reasonably common for prehistoric artists to go a few miles to gather materials, but that distance indicates tremendous effort from the artist and points to the possibility of trade or supply routes in the ancient past. It's amazing what we can learn from looking at works of art. Paintings lining the walls of caves in Lascaux and other parts of the world are some of our most ancient artifacts. They give us the greatest glimpse into what life was like for our early ancestors. They show us what was important to people tens of thousands of years ago. Before people had pretty much anything we associate with modern life. They had paintings. They made art. Because I would say art is the most important development in human history. Art and creative expression is actually what makes us human. It gives us the ability to imagine a better tomorrow and communicate those ideas and that vision to others so we can make it a reality. Now, after the break, we're going to learn a little bit more about our modern paints, how they're made, and how we can make the best use of them. Now to learn a little bit more about the paints that we use today, I've got Rita Gibson, the product manager for Prang, one of my absolute favorite paint manufacturers, my constant go-to for my classroom. Thanks for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great introduction. I'm as excited about Praying as you are, so I look forward to our conversation today. Praying is one of those companies, and I am I'm not being paid for, for this at all. I should be trying to. I'm bad at business, but <laughs> Praying is my go-to. I've been using the watercolors like during the COVID days, I stocked, I bought hundreds of them because I, I knew like if I can only get one material out to everybody, it's got to be the praying watercolors. Little pro tip for everybody, praying sells the refill packs without the box around it, which made my money go a little bit further with my budget. Mm-hmm. Always love that, that you can replace individual pans and stuff like that. But uh Let's get to the actual interview here, not just me talking about my favorite materials. First off, broadly speaking, can you just explain like what is paint? So that's a great question. Is there many different types and purposes of paint? So some paints, you know, we use for decorative purposes, like the paint on the walls in our house. Some have more of a protective use, like the paints on cars. And some is for art, like the tempered watercolor paints that we're going to be talking about today. So paint is a combination of a few different elements. Um, Our praying paints uses a variety of organic pigments that uh, is used to create color, um, that we blend those pigments together to help create that rainbow palette that you see across our tempers and watercolors. Can I just interject here a little bit? Because part of what I like to do is make sure that I'm breaking down the jargon. When we're talking about pigments, we're just talking about the colored stuff, right? It's what makes the color in the paint is the pigments. So you're using organic, which is like, you know, made from natural sources. Usually organic is going to indicate probably plant-based. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So you're using plant-based stuff to make the colors. Um, And then, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure we get that vocabulary out there. Uh, So go on, you've put together organic pigments. So we put together organic pigments um, and then we have a a proprietary binder system that includes some other natural components like gum arabic or plant starches that really help us bring all the materials together. So it kind of glues it all together and makes sure that it stays liquid or eventually into that solid solution that you see in those watercolor trays. And what it does, what what the binder system does, is it helps keep it stable and make sure that it holds it together. Yeah, so you've got the pigment, that's the colored stuff. There's going to be some sort of a binder that holds it together. And then, you know, we've got to thin it out so it can flow. So that would be, uh, if I'm using the proper terminology, the dilution agent, which is basically just the water. Yes, all of our paints are water-based paints, and that's the beautiful part of it is that the water-based paints are naturally a little bit easier to wash off of your skin and your clothes, so it kind of has a couple of different reasons why um, we really focus on those types of, that type of combination of the pigments, the water-based solution, and that great natural binder that keeps it all together. Okay, so then, you know, you're using the natural pigments, um, you know, you, you bind it all together. How exactly do these things come together? You know, like what's happening in the factory as it's assembled? Yeah, so they're all made a little bit differently. Um, For temper paints, I don't know if you know this, but we actually make the little bottles that we put our liquid temper paints into in the same building that we make our paints. So it's all under one roof and we kind of were able to do it all at once. So we make the bottles by basically taking little beads of plastic resin and we pour them into a machine and the machine stretches, blows, and molds the plastic into our unique little liquid paint bottle shape. 
So it's like blowing a bubble with this plastic to make the bottle? Yeah, it's kind of like blowing a bubble. And then it really stretches it, and then there's a mold that forms it into the shape that we have that you see on your shelf. Oh, that's awesome. So you're making that on site in the same place that you're making the paint. So I don't know, is that for freshness, convenience? So we make it all under one roof. It really helps keep things streamlined. It helps make sure that the moment that the paints are made and blended, that they're packed away and they're capped and preserved for freshness and safety. So we really want to make sure that we do as much as we can in-house and under one roof so that we have control over the quality of the products that we produce. That would make sense, and that would explain why your stuff's always so good. But what about the watercolors? I mean, those are little, like, discs of pigment in a tray. I mean, how are you mixing the solid stuff up? Does it start off as a liquid and then it gets poured in and dries out, or what's going on there? Yeah, so that's very similar process to the tempera paints. Um, there are a few differences that we do when we make watercolor over tempera. Um, the, the formula, the blend is just a little bit different. It has um, unique components to it that will help it go into that solid phase. And then eventually, once you add water onto those little pans, it helps it go back into the liquid page. So there are some water-soluble materials in there that really help it become a solid, but also be able to become a liquid again once you use it to paint. So just, you know, again, for the vocabulary, when we're talking about water-soluble, so much of like my horrors of high school chemistry is <laughs> coming back to me now. Um, but when we talk about stuff being water-soluble, that means it dissolves in water. So even tempera paints are going to stay water-soluble. When our paint dries out, you can actually get it wet again and it becomes a usable thing. That's effectively what tempera cakes are, right? Correct. Tempera cakes is, is really just a different format for, temp, for liquid tempera. It's just a nice, highly concentrated um, cake. So the tempera cakes are a nice little solution for some of those younger artists that maybe get a little out of control and squeeze the liquid tempera a little bit too much and make a big mess. And I just got to say, in defense of the younger students, they're not the only ones who do it. <laughs> I've been known to squeeze half a bottle onto a palate. You know, <laughs> we all do that. Um, but the temper cakes are fantastic because it's it's basically just the pigment and binder and you add the water when you're ready to. It goes a long way. It lasts a long time. Uh, now, since we're kind of naturally shifting towards this, Thinking about how we use this in our studios, in our classrooms, uh, I always like to try to get a little practical advice in here. So watercolors and temperas, in some ways, the description of them seems very similar, but as someone working with them, um, they feel very different. Can you talk about like, what's, what's the difference? Where would watercolor be preferable over tempera or vice versa? Right, for tempera paint, Really, it's it's personal preference if you what you want to use tempera paint on, but if you're painting on a cardboard, if you're using paper mache, if your paper is colored um, or really absorbent, you might do better with the tempera paint. You may just prefer how that lays down. Um, it's more opaque, um, which means it's a little less see-through, so it'll show up a lot better on the heavier papers. Watercolor is a little bit more translucent than tempera. So it's, you can actually see through it. Um, so by natural default, it's a little bit thinner. And then when you're using watercolor, you're gonna probably naturally default 
to some of those lighter papers, even just the simple mixed media or watercolor papers. All of that, very true. I, I also just want to point out because, and this is the, the teacher and me wanting to share some tips. I have found that watercolors, specifically the praying watercolors, work really well on clay. Um, you know, last week's episode was about was about glazes, and one of the things that's weird about glazes is the color changes in the kiln. It can be very difficult and confusing and frustrating for a lot of the younger students, but with my younger students, I use the praying watercolors because what you see is what you get. And, um, you know, not going to name other names, but some sometimes the colors would fade a little bit compared to what I've experienced with the prangs. Um, I absolutely love the way they look on, on clay as well, whereas I wouldn't use the tempers on, on clay because because of the fact that it stays water soluble, as we've talked about, uh, mm-hmm. some of the pigment can sort of like almost rub off when you pick it up. But with the watercolors, it soaks into the body of the clay, which is fantastic. Now, on that topic of water and soaking into things, I gotta say, I was way older than I'd like to admit when I realized that water, the amount of water, was key to success with watercolor paints. Um, I always tell my students, the best two bits of advice I can give are pay attention to how wet your brush is and be gentle painting with the tip of the brush so the bristles don't splay all over the place. If your brush is having a bad hair day, you know, you'll have a bad painting day. What tips or tricks do you think you'd recommend to young artists to get the most of the medium? Well, first I just want to remind our young artists that both tempera and watercolor paints will wash off their hands and clothing with warm water and soap. So let your creativity flow. Like don't don't hold back. You know, you, there's really no limit to your imagination. So we want to make sure that paints and other materials help you unlock that and, and turn your ideas into art. Um, so, you know, the more fun and the more um, curiosity you have, I think the, the more excited you'll be by the art you create. Um, but one of the tips I keep seeing everywhere on social is where teachers are using spray bottles to gently spray the watercolor sets just to get them yeah. started. So have you been seeing that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, when you spray them just a little bit, that water it starts to soak into it. So it's it's rehydrating. You get that little bit thicker paint. Um, because otherwise, if you go straight from the, the dipping the brush into a water dish and then straight to the a completely dried out tray. Um, what's happening is you're just soaking up a tiny bit. It's mostly water in the solution. And that's why you get those really pale faded colors. But if you if you get it wet right at the start, it starts soaking in. So more of the pigment is leaching out into that water and more free to be picked up by the brush. Sorry, I, st- I stole your answer, didn't I? <laughs> no, that was great. <laughs> yeah, keep talking, Kyle. Keep talking. <laughs> but I think that is a that is a good one. Um, any other any other advice that you have for people or techniques um, you've seen that you that stood out to you? So I think the the key technique is just experimentation. So I also want to remind you that the amount of water that you use that we just were kind of talking about a moment ago, lets you adjust that color concentration um, for both watercolors and temper cakes. So as we talk about color saturation or how concentrated that pigment is, I just want to remind that the less water you use, 
the more um, bold the colors will be. The watercolors have a tendency to be a little bit thinner, but just remember that you can always add depth to your art by layering and blending the colors until you get the range you're looking for. So experimentation is really important. Um, I think that's probably my biggest tip is just to encourage kids to continue to be curious and test and experiment with all of these different paints and see what, see what you like about them the most. Yeah, and just to build off what you were saying about the watercolors and the way you can layer them, it's always good to start off lighter because it's easy to add more. Uh, subtractive methods with painting tend to be a little bit harder for a lot of people. So start light and then, you know, build it, layer it in, get more saturated as you go to build that depth of color is a great strategy. And the last thing I want to add, um, again, trying to build off what you're saying there, the creativity and the flexibility of experimenting with these materials. I know we'll probably talk about this in future episodes, but you make more than than paints for a reason. And sometimes mixing media can be fantastic. One of my favorite things to do is use crayons or oil pastels and then paint over it uh, to get that little bit of a resist because the watercolor paints and and stuff like that will slide right off the wax from the crayon. And so we see those details and every time I show it to like kindergarten and first grade for the first time, there are audible gasps. It's like a magic trick, even though I'm explaining exactly the science as it's happening, it's still just so beautiful to see it in play. So I highly recommend if you're looking to experiment a little bit, try experimenting, mixing media, oil pastels or crayons and then paint over it with watercolors. Works especially well if you're using like those really bright, bold colors of crayons and then use like a dark, like a black uh, watercolor. It's beautiful. Um, so when we're painting, as you were kind of mentioning, using some of those oil-based materials or other, mater other things in combination and the mixed media is a really great idea. I think um, when you look at the forms of paint and the formats of, of painting materials. Painting isn't just paint water and a brush. There's other materials you can paint with and it comes in a lot handier forms um, like watercolor pencils or crayons. They look like and they work like colored pencils and crayons but they're water soluble meaning that the color is going to dissolve once you add a stroke from a wet brush on top of it. The brush activates the paint and turns it into watercolor. So again, kind of going back to that magic we were talking about earlier that you have when you activate the paint with water. Um, watercolor pencils are by far one of my most favorite materials to use because it truly feels like magic. Turning those lines and designs on paper into fluid paint that you can blend with. Awesome. And I got to say, I... I'm so glad I did this because now I'm learning something too. I've I've known about watercolor pencils and I've I've done the the marker wash techniques, but I did not know you also make water soluble crayons. You do. Now I've got something I've got to go check out. So thank you very much. Um, I don't know that my budget's going to thank you, but I am I am always happy to learn about new toys to play with and experiment with. So thank you once again, uh, Rita Gibson from Prang, the makers of apparently even more media than I knew of. Thank you, Kyle. This has been a really great opportunity. I, it's always great to talk about products and I'm learning from you through this conversation too. So it's been really wonderful to have this chat with you today. Art Smart is produced, recorded, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. The background music you've been enjoying throughout this episode was created by Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. 
Special thanks once again to my guest, Rita Gibson from Prang. And be sure to tune in next week to find out how surprisingly interesting paper can be. Art Smart is an Airwave Media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources. <laughs>